You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, there's no cross in democracy. Although there kind of, there almost is democracy. My spelling's never been very good, but maybe there should be. Maybe what our body politic most needs today is the body of Christ, to be the body of Christ. Because it's the body of Christ that can point the body politic to the body of God on the cross, where we find God himself physically, completely offering his life and love for enemies, for opponents. It's interesting to me that uh, in the sovereignty of God, we come today to the fourth marker of discipleship, which is to embody God's love. The idea in our text is that when we put away childish things, what will be left is love. That that's fundamentally who we are. That's fundamentally what we're growing up into, just to love the way we've been perfectly loved by God. That's maturity. That's destiny. And so this is a marker. I believe God uses community to bring us to maturity. I believe God uses community to express his love for a hurting world today, the body of Christ. And you you don't need me to tell you that we're deeply divided in the world today. CNN reporters were watching a video feed of demonstrators across America, split screen on one side. Some of the commentators were going, you know, it's really time for unity. And then I like Van Jones. He said, you know what? Uh, Unity, yes. But if we want unity, we have first to hear the pain. We have first to hear the pain just can't talk about unity. We have to actually do something about unity. But I think what's making the pain worse this week in America is that many of us feel like we have done what we knew how to do, and we don't know what else we can do. What can we do? It's a sense of powerlessness. Well, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to people who are faced with the same question, what do we do? It's the letter that's been read, it's 1 Corinthians, and Paul's writing to people who live in Greece. Corinth was situated on an isthmus, which was a crossroads, north and south by land, east and west by sea, of people from around the world. It was very cosmopolitan, uh, but a difference, people of difference, different ethnicity, different economic statuses, different political views. It was a divided culture, but what really got under Paul's skin is that it was a divided church in Corinth. That's why he writes his letter. If you read the opening uh, chapter, once he gets through all the customary niceties, he comes right to verse 10, where he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, be unified. That's, that's what he's after. Because they're not. As it turns out, we read the rest of the book, they're politically uh, disunified. There's someone saying, I'm of Paulus. Well, I'm of Cephas. And others are saying, I'm of Paul. You know, and then the super spiritual, I'm of Christ. You know, (laughs) they're divided politically, religiously, morally, economically. And that division creates in the church an existential threat. It's an existential threat. And so Paul writes this letter to help them find an answer to their question, what can we do? Let me tell you a story about a bear. Uh, this is a story I read in John Ortberg's writings. It actually comes from a French movie, translated The Bear. Here's what we all know about bears. If you go hiking in the Northwest, you never get between a bear and her cub. 
right? I hope you know that. This could save your life today, coming to church. In this movie, it starts off with a baby bear whose mother dies, so the, ba- the bear's alone. Um, and therefore, the bear, the cub, is facing an existential threat. But there's a surprise, because one day along comes a big bear. Kodiak bear is the largest of all bears. And this male Kodiak bear starts to follow the little cub around and, and adopts it. It's kind of an awkward but new family that's formed between these two bears. The Kodiak teaches the cub everything it needs to know in order to grow up to maturity, protects him, shows him how to catch fish out of a stream, how to scratch his back on a tree, all that bear stuff. And it's great. There's a lot of hope. Until one day, the cub finds himself alone. There he is in the forest. And he don't really know where the Kodiak has gone, but the first one who realizes the cub was alone, it's, not, it's neither of them, it's actually a mountain lion. And so we see all of a sudden, without even a snap of a twig, there's a mountain lion face-to-face with this cub, just yards away. And the camera first shows us the face of the mountain lion, it's just snarling and ready for food. And... Um, and then the camera shows us, you know, the cub's face. It's, it's terrified. And what does it do? Well, the cub is going to do what the big bear had taught him to do. The cub will imitate the Kodiak. And so he rears up on his hind legs, you know, and he snarls, and, which sounds like a pathetic little squeak, you know. The, he can't even get his hands up to the height of the, the, the teeth of the uh, mountain lion. And uh, then we go back and we look at the mountain lion's face, and he's utterly unimpressed with this display of, of strength. But all of a sudden, his face changes to fear. And he quickly turns, and he runs off into the forest. And the little cub is confused by this. What? Did what I do just work? You know, I mean, I, I'm feeling rather empowered. But the, what the producer did, then the camera backs away, and you see behind the cub, you see the Kodiak is towering back there, all of his furious glory. You know, they're nine feet tall, and then his paws on top of that, 1,500 pounds. And you realize what kept the cub safe. It was the body of the great bear. And I think there's a lesson in that for us. It's that love has a body. It's that love has a body. The Apostle Paul tells the Romans uh, as much when he writes... Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hey, look at the cross. There's a body there. I mean, not just any body. This is the great body. This is the body of the beloved Son of God giving his life for the world that has made itself his enemy, absorbing its hurt. What a mighty roar. It will send brokenness and pain and hurt and evil itself, scattering for the darkness. This is what Paul seems to be getting at, 1 Corinthians 13, that love has a body. Would you pull your Bible back out, please, to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 7. It's on page 934. Just leave it there in your lap for a second. But the heart of this, it's probably the most beautiful articulation of what love is and ever penned in any language. Uh, We read it at our weddings, right? It's familiar to us. Verses 4 through 7. I want you to notice three things very quickly. First of all, it's all verbs. It's just a staccato of 15 verbs. This tells us that whatever feelings might be associated with love or not, it's always an action first. Love is something we do or it's not love. 
Okay. Second thing to notice is that there are eight negations of these verbs, eight times. Why that? Well, it's because you and I really don't know what real love is like. The culture doesn't. I mean, so he has to say what it's not as much as he has to say what it is. So he's not talking about romantic love. He's not talking about sentimental love. He's not talking about the love that makes you feel good. Okay? It's bigger than that. And then the third thing we notice about this is that all of these verbs seem to personify love. Do you notice it's, it's not love is this, but love does this. So love is personified, almost as though it's a person. Paul very masterfully shifts the question from what is love to who is love. See, it's provocative. Now you're, you're scratching your head. You're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who does all these things? Who is love? Let me give you a suggestion. I think he means you. What? I think he means you. Let me ask you to do something this morning. This might be a little uncomfortable for you. I want you to picture someone in your life who's hard to love. Could be a roommate, could be a parent, uh, could be your neighbor. It could be someone who votes differently than you do. Picture that person. And then I want you to read this text aloud, and I want you to put your name in as the subject of each of these verbs, okay? Would you do this with me? I'm going I'm I'm to read George, but I want you to put Pedro in, okay? Or whatever your name happens to be. Let's read it together. Ready? George is patient. George is kind. George is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. George does not insist on his own way. George is not irritable or resentful. George does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Can I hear you? But rejoices in truth. George bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Man, how does that feel? It's a little challenging. My wife couldn't tolerate me describing myself and my love in quite this way this morning, so she left. She's a... <laughs> I know that's not George, not the George I know. And you go, yeah, so, okay. So I get it. Paul wants us to love with this way, but maybe he's got another uh, subject of these verbs in mind. Who else would that be? We're in church. Jesus. Okay, thanks. Uh, I, was, I was worried for a second. The gospel choir <laughs> saved us. Yeah, Jesus is the subject of all these verbs for Paul, right? And if you think about Jesus as a subject, now it gives us the opportunity to be the objects of his love in every case. So I want to read it again. This time I'm not going to make you read it, but I want you to hear it as though you were the object of love. And I want you to think about a time in your life, maybe when you're hard to love or a part of you that's hard to love. Listen to this. Again, substitute your name here for the object of these verbs. Jesus is patient with blank. Okay, you think your name. Jesus is kind to George. Jesus is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude to George. Jesus does not insist on his own way with George. Jesus is not irritable or resentful towards George. Jesus does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth about George. Jesus bears George, believes George, has hope for George, endures all things with you. See, now that... That I think also is the sense of this passage. But I think, in some weird way, Paul intends us to read both of these implied uh, subjects, you, the reader, and Jesus, our Savior, together. I think what he really thinks that love is personified in is Jesus in you. Okay? Jesus in you is really the meaning of this passage and really the subject of all of these 
verbs. Remember, he's talking about the body of Christ. He said that in chapter 12. You're the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Would you just look around you for a second? I mean, really turn your head. You're Presbyterian, but you can turn your head. Look at the person next to you. If you're, if you're really supple and young enough, you can turn your head all the way around. I don't mean 360, but just check the person behind you. Okay, look around. Look below if you're in the balcony. Look down if you're in the balcony. Look, up, I mean, below, look up. This is the body of Christ. Yeah. This is the body of Christ. I know it's scary. <laughs> because you're looking at other other person and you go, they don't look any more powerful than I am. I don't see where they could save my bacon. And you're thinking about yourself and you go, I'm just as afraid of, of, of things as that person is afraid. I don't think I could save their bacon. And so why does George love bacon so much and just keeps coming up in his sermons? I don't know. The point is, you're like one of those little bears, who the cub who goes, ah, and it sounds like this pathetic little roar when you love at your best. You're puny. And nobody has to respect that at all. The, the thing is, what Paul knows is that behind you, there's a Kodiak. The cross, the body of our Savior Jesus Christ, hanging with outstretched arms behind you. The glory of God's ferocity, loving you in this creation. His roar is the voice that breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And he's going to love in you and through you today, right now, through us. See, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. If you read in context, you read, this is about the Holy Spirit. This is about the presence of Jesus Christ in Christian community. Now, that's the bear. You're the bear. And the idea here is, is that the great body of our Savior sounds off in the puny Bible body of his people. Love has a body. Let me come back then to Van Jones, because I think he's on to something. He says, if we want unity, we have to hear the pain first. And friends, today, I want to suggest to you, this is something that the body of Christ can do that we can hear pain. We can. Why? Why? Because we know what to do with it. We, the puny body of Christ, his people and small groups and missional communities around this city can hear pain because we know we can take it as the puny Bible to the great, uh, puny body to the great body. We can take it to the cross. And he will know what to do with it. He will know how to absorb it and to disarm it and bring reconciliation and healing. In this election, there's just been so much pain. Uh, and I think the, the pain beneath the pain is this thought that, you know, not only do I not know what to do, but I just think no one's listening. That we're just not listening to each other and that no one really hears me. A lot of people feel like I really didn't like any of the options that I had and none of them really articulate my real hurt, my real concern. Um, I mean, we're told that rural people didn't feel heard, working class people, veterans, police officers, um, economic conservatives, just not feeling heard in this election. We're told that millennials, that immigrants, that Americans of all color, that women, that girls, that faith communities, that victims of sexual assault, just not feeling heard right now. And there's a whole lot of pain that we don't know what to do with. I want to take a risk here and I want to read to you something that's going to be hard for us to hear. It's, it's written by one of our elders who is an African-American woman, and it comes out of a thread, an uh, email thread that the elders were having as we were wrestling with what's going on in our country. 
And I'm not asking you to agree with this. In fact, I know some of you will not agree with this, and you'll react to it, but I, as I read it, I want you to, to focus on the body of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit and allow, and allow Him to allow you to hear this pain, hear the pain. So this person writes, today was particularly difficult because I did not have control of my emotions. And I could not seem to bring them under control. I'm not upset because Hillary lost. I'm upset because on November 8th, 2016, hate won. Hate is inextricably connected to fear. And we have proof of this nation's state of toxicity. The only reason that none of the black men in my family have not been the victims in one of these senseless, racist murders is because they were not there. Some of you may be confused by the previous statement, so I ask you just to sit with it. But hatred, fear, and bigotry do not have to prevail. My faith gives me this hope. Today, we all must make an active commitment that we will do our part, that we will do our part to be agents of healing. We cannot let hatred write future chapters of our collective history. My children's and families' lives depend upon it. So look, by the way, I think one of the most pernicious things that's happening is this idea that if you vote for Donald Trump, it's a vote for racism. You know, I, that's not a good equation. But I want to speak to those of you who, re, who hear that and you go, you know, I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh, okay, fair. But can you hear it? Are you willing to hear the hurt? Because that is somebody's reality. That's their world. That's their hurt. And I want to suggest to you what the Apostle Paul knows, the gospel teaches us that uh, you don't have to agree with somebody to care for them, to love them, to do love for them and with them. What would this look like in our neighborhoods? There was so much grief counseling that was happening around the church here in the building on Wednesday uh, I thought, I wonder if we're hurting so much, maybe our neighbors are feeling this pain as well. And I got an idea, and I think it was from the Holy Spirit. Um, I, as I've told you before, some of us are trying to start a missional community right in our immediate neighborhood. A uh, bunch of non-church people across the political spectrum. So far, all we've done is eaten a lot of bacon, drink some mimosas and, um, and waffles. And uh, we have this breakfast club that we meet every two weeks, and we pull everybody together. And, and I thought, but, you know, this is a moment that needs addressing. And so... I sent out this email, say, hey, would anybody like to gather tonight, this is just Wednesday afternoon, uh, for a nonpartisan detox and pray together for healing? And you know what happened? Bing, 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 bing. The replies just compounding from people I didn't even know. And I was shocked that night to watch my dining room fill up with my neighbors. And there were tears, and it was hard. But across the spectrum... They gathered around a table to read Psalm 46, to offer silent Celtic prayers for healing and to bless one another. And it was unbelievable. But I think we have an incredible opportunity right now in our country to share hope in Jesus Christ. Let's not miss this crisis. This is our mission to share hope. And you know what? You and I are surrounded by people who have an apocalyptic vision of the future right now. It used to be in the 70s, it was the Christians who talked about the late great planet Earth. Now it's your neighbors who see an economic apocalypse, who see an environmental apocalypse, who see a social apocalypse, a political apocalypse. And you know what? You know how the story ends, don't you? It ends with love. So I, I, what I pray for is our families. Our, our small groups, 
our missional communities, to get out into our neighbors' lives and give them witness to the love of Jesus Christ. And you know, this week, all it needs to be is listen to the pain. Just, just be willing to listen to the pain. You don't have to agree, you don't have to endorse it, just listen, hear it. Love has two bodies, the great one and our puny ones. And the world needs them both. I want to close with a song. Uh, in the 1980s, B.B. King came to Dublin, uh, Ireland, and he, he was a great one. He was a giant of the jazz, as you know. But he met a, a puny little white uh, musician who was just getting a start named Bono. And, um, of course, Bono was absolutely impressed and intimidated, frankly, to talk to B.B. King. But B.B. King was loving. B.B. said to Bono, hey, why don't you guys write a song for me? Wow. And he did. He wrote this song. And the words are powerful, but it's even more powerful to me is to see an African-American artist and a white artist side by side uh, on the tour singing this song together. Here's how it goes. It's called When Love Comes to Town. Maybe I was wrong to ever let you down, but I did what I did before love came to town. I was there when they crucified my Lord. I held the scabbard when the soldier drew the sword. I threw the dice when they pierced his side, but I've seen love conquer the great divide. When love comes to town, I'm gonna jump that train. When love comes to town, I'm gonna catch that flame. Let's pray. Oh dear God, light us up with the flame of your Holy Spirit and then send us out to do something this week in Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.